every headline is about outrage, followed by curiosity and secrets. The one dress that every actress wore on the red carpet, but they don't tell you what it is. Or the one secret to beauty, the one secret to losing weight, the one secret to blah, blah, blah. And why do those work? Like, why is clickbait so focused on secrets and outrage? It's emotional response. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Anthony Butler. He's in Helena, Montana, and he talks about his journey of discovery. He is a linguist and was in the army. He's traveled the world. His wife's from Russia. Talk about cultural difference. But really, the story kicks off where he gets fired by one of his clients. He ran a digital marketing agency. And his client rang him up one day and said, you're fired. I quite like your work, but it hasn't made a difference. And that for him was a turning point. Up until then, he'd been a content-driven HubSpot partner. And he decided that what was missing, or when he looked at his data, he could see that some things worked and some things didn't. And the things that worked contained emotion and drove change. And so he decided to look at all the research and come up with a program which he calls Primal Storytelling, which he can now teach. He's packaged it up. He can teach it to people. He talks us through what the methodology looks like as we chat today. And he can help people drive emotion. So how do you want people to feel when they buy from you? How do you want people to feel when your sales team show up? What fears might they have that stops them proceeding with you or buying from you? And that might be them personally or the business, more likely to even be them. So we talk about, I guess it's a different twist on marketing, how to drive emotion into your business and drive results. So a great conversation with Anthony. I really enjoyed talking to him. I'm sure you will too. Hey there, this is Tony Butler and I'm the author of Primal Storytelling and I'm also the founder of Marketing agency can do ideas out of Helena, Montana. Anthony, why did the world need primal storytelling? What's the genesis of this? Well, the genesis of primal storytelling is just the absolute graveyard of corporate blogs. Have you ever read a blog from a, a giant corporation that you loved, that you bookmarked, and that you, you wanted to print it out and take it home with you and like share with your family? And the answer is no. It's just terrible, isn't it? I just think about the millions of people around the world. Well, they'll all be out of work because ChatGPT can write inane garbage just as well as they can. 
So it, it's funny you say that because everyone's like, oh, chat GPP, you know, it's going to put us all out of business. It's like, <laughs> guess what? It's not. And at least not at its current level. And I, I've done an enormous amount of testing on it. And what, one of the things that you miss from that is it still doesn't have a deep, deep ability to make connections and then to link those connections to people's emotions and like write for individuals and audiences. You know, it doesn't have empathy yet. It's not true, deep artificial intelligence. It's not general intelligence yet. It's sort of blah, 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 blah. It doesn't have an opinion. Well, it can have an opinion, but they're trying to squeeze some of that out because opinions have such controversy and it takes a character to back up opinion. I often think if people don't hate you, then you're not trying hard enough. You know, for people to like you, some people have got to not like you. So you were trying to create the antithesis, of, a guidebook to the antithesis of corporate blah. Yeah, absolutely. My real goal is to help marketers, help entrepreneurs, like take a step beyond trying to write for an algorithm, trying to write so that you're going to rank on Google and just write for real people, write, write something that people care about, you know, have some empathy for your audience. Like, like really think about them and what do they need to hear from you? Like, what's the one message that if everyone heard from your company that they would think about you in a different way, it would help them in a profound way. And, and that's the path to success for some of these companies, you know, is to think much bigger. When you say people would hear, you mean the people that you, that should hear? Yeah, people that should hear. Because here's the thing, we can't write for everyone. Primal storytelling is not a, it's not a book my mom would love to read. She, she's a little old lady with her grandkids and she loves to garden. And she doesn't want to read anything about marketing. But if you're trying to grow a business, if you are a professional marketer and you want to understand how to create viral content, yeah, then it's a book that you might be interested in. You know, if you want to write better copy, it's a book you're definitely interested in. And it's just a very narrow audience. What brought you to this point? You said in the intro that you run a digital agency. Are you trying to help those people that can't hire you or is it? What's your motivation? Yeah, my motivation is two parts. It's one, to give marketers a real format, a real system that they can follow. So if you're just graduating from college and you don't know a lot, and you know, I, I've hired a number of I, Ivy League grads from marketing schools around the country, and they, they come to the agency, they don't know anything. And it's a shock of what they're still learning in school. They're learning like 1950s Mad Men type advertising, you know, how, how to make a perfume commercial. And but that's not how a small business markets. It's not, if, you know, if you're under $500 million, direct response marketing is what you really need. You need leads. You need people to pay attention to your business so that you can grow. Okay. But there's just not a lot of real systems that have been published around that. And I guess nine years ago, I started this company and I started out as a tech support company for marketing agencies where we were helping them implement a marketing system called HubSpot. Bought, I bought it and recommended to clients. Oh yeah. So I'm a HubSpot company and that's how we started. We started out in the beginning, we were only helping companies implement HubSpot and then manage it. And I did my first couple couple of implementations and this, this big company, this financial company we're working with, it came back to us like, hey, Tony, we love HubSpot. It's really helping us, but we just don't have enough content. Can you help us with the content? And I was like, yeah, I'm a good writer. I can do that. And so we jumped into the content side. And then a couple of years later, we're producing content at scale for businesses. And I have a clause in most of our contracts that are, hey, you know, if you 
if you went out of the contract, no questions asked, you, you can get out. Like we do good work and we stand by it. And I had, I had someone take me up on it. And this CEO from a tech company, they, you know, it was one of my specialty areas. They called us and they, Hey, Tony, like all the work's on time. It's professional. Yeah, but we're going to, we're going to fire you guys. It's just not moving the needle. And I was like, what? Like this has never happened before. I can't believe it. You'd never moved the needle before or you'd never been fired before. I've never been fired before. Okay. You were, were you measuring moving the needle? That was the wake up. So you reckoned he was wrong and you were right? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, he was right. We were, you know, it was for cause. I, like it was a, it was a righteous firing. Like I would have fired me, you know, and because here's the thing, when you hire a marketing agency, what are you buying? Well, you're buying expertise, but mostly you're buying the result. Like you want something you want leads, you want attention, you want sales, you want your sales team to cry because the marketing agency sent them so many leads they can't manage them all. Like that, that's, that's the sign that things are going well. And so this guy calls me up. He's like, yeah, we got some leads, the content, you know, it's, we're getting some search engine optimization, you know, we're getting some, a little more organic traffic, but the organic traffic is not doing it for us. And that instance it was a wake-up call for me because then I started looking at dashboards across all of our clients. And one of the things I realized was it was really hit and miss, you know, and we were following a similar process for each client. You know, we had systems in place, but we were missing like the secret sauce. It was like, what moves the needle? And I was just trying to figure it out, trying to figure it out. And I ended up going to this business conference and down in San Diego, three days, and on day two, this speaker gets up and he's talking about marketing and he's, he says something that really rang with me. And he's like, people make decisions with emotion. And then they go back and they try to justify with logic. And it's something I'd heard before. But then I started asking the question. I was like, wait, wait a minute. Which emotions? How many emotions are there? Is there anything more than just emotions? And so I started doing some research and I just stumbled upon this idea of evolutionary psychology and all the work that scientists have done to categorize emotions, to categorize, they, they think of these primal urges. And that's what the book is about. As I, I went through all the research, I, and then I started testing. I'm a marketer. So I tested all these ideas to see what worked and what didn't and narrowed it down into a system so that to help companies create content that's going to move the needle, it's going to generate leads, it's going to help you build an audience, it's going to help like, get the word out, you know, and have your team trained in a way that everyone's talking the same language and they understand why they're doing it. Just over the weekend, you know, I can't remember who it was from, but I did have an email from somebody saying, and it was about, it was about emotions. It was, I can't remember who it was from, but so how many emotions did you settle on? Cause it, they, I read, I read their article in depth and it, there's some different research about how many emotions there might be. And then the debate was, was sexual urge an emotion or a driver and, where did you, where did you settle? So, yeah, so there's, there's some overlap. Most emotional responses come in what we think of as a gradient. So like, like, do, do you have kids? Do you have, how old are your kids? <clears throat> the youngest, the youngest two are eight and six, eight and seven. Oh, awesome. Okay. So think about when your kids, they, they do something. And they're going to try something new. Maybe, maybe you take them skiing or snowboarding. Yeah. We went skiing last week. Yeah. So the first time your youngest, you know, they're maybe they're five years old and they're putting the skis on and they, you know, they don't have poles and they're going down and, and you have this mixed emotions about it. You're excited for them because they're accomplishing something new and mom's worried they might fall down and break their arm. 
And then you're also, you're like really happy that they're, they're making it, but you're scared that they might fall. You know, there's, there's this like mix. Like when your kids graduate high school, you know, you're, you're excited that you have this big accomplishment. You're fearful for their future. You're, you're nervous that they're leaving the house and how's that going to change your relationship with your spouse? It's mixed emotion. Okay. It's, it's a gradient of emotions. Very rarely do we feel just a single emotion. That's what I outline is I say, okay, here's about nine emotions that as a marketer, if I focused on these, you know, and so I, I outline them in the book. So curiosity, surprise, you know, lots of things that we see a lot of it out there. Maybe the most overused emotion in for marketers is outrage. You know, we have outrage everywhere. Every headline is about outrage, followed by curiosity and secrets. You know, the one dress that every actress wore on the red carpet, but they don't tell you what it is, or the one secret to beauty, the one secret to losing weight, the one secret to blah, blah, blah. And, you know, why, why do those work? Like, why, why is clickbait so focused on secrets and outrage? It's emotional response. It, it's, it's things that you know it's clickbait, you know, if you click on it, you're going to some BS landing page that is going to try to get you to click on all their bizarre ads, right? But you want to know like, hey, what was Charlize Theron really doing? Like, <laughs> what really makes her beautiful? You know what it is and you still click on it anyway. And, and what I'm trying to help marketers do is have a place to start. You know, and some studies that scientists have done, they've identified more than 30 different emotions and multiple gradients of emotions. USC has done an enormous amount of research on this. If you go on their website, they have a, a chart that you can go and like it shows you like what those gradients are. So it's like for a moviegoer, if you're going to a horror movie, for instance, you know, they, there's always elements of surprise and suspense and then also horror. Well, all three of those things together, very powerful. But then when you start to mix in like some other emotions like disgust, you know, they, they try to, you know, the science behind some of these movies is they're trying to manage your emotion throughout 90 minutes, two hours. I'm just laughing because the first, the first line of your book, I woke up to my mother's screams. You know, that's, that's not, it's not the typical first line in a marketing book. It's not, but the reason I wrote that and I, I, I had a lot with my editor, we went back and forth on whether or not we should really include some of the personal stories that I, I told in the book. Because I get personal and like some, some things that happened during war, some, some things that happened personally that were examples of extreme emotion. And, and with marketers, we rarely do we get to use extreme emotions in our copy, extreme emotion in our video. What we use is we use the gradients. But when you start to understand the extremes, it helps you then think through like, what are those everyday emotions that a small business could tap into that would help get more attention. You know, and, and a lot of it has to do with empathy and with love and spirituality and a lot of things that we overlook that you could easily use in a business and you just don't really understand how. And so one of the questions I often ask when I'm talking to clients or prospects is, why do people buy from you and not from your competitors? And I find most often people actually can't answer that question. Yeah, I, I think they overlook a single factor that is vital in every business. And it's how does your brand make them feel? And I, and I can actually prove this. 
Okay. And the example that I use is think about the car you drive. Now, if I ask most people, like, why do you drive the car that you have, you know, versus, oh, it was a gift from dad, you know, or mommy gave me this car, you know, it's like a car that you went and bought on your own. Well, it's a complex answer and it doesn't have a single answer. But when you boil down all the stuff, oh, well, it had power windows and super safe brakes and blah, blah, blah. It's actually not true. What we break it down to is it comes down to how did that car make you feel within your tribe, within your group, within your family, your friends, your relatives? How did you feel driving it around? Like, think about how much does a car cost? Well, at the low end, you can buy a junker for 500 bucks, you know, an old rusted bag of bolts that, you know, barely can get you down the road and spewing smoke behind it, right? And all the way up to millions and millions of dollars, I think you can buy a Bugatti for a few million bucks, right? Both of these vehicles do similar things, their their transportation, but how you feel driving it and your thoughts on people when they see you in it. Same thing with your clothes, with the car you drive, with your significant other, like all those things, they have a lot of mixed emotions on why you made those decisions that all boil down to how it made you feel about yourself and your place within the world. I had a stand-up fight actually with a client because he drives a pickup truck, which is not a normal CEO vehicle in Montana. It might be very common, but here in here in Wiltshire, it's not the most common CEO vehicle. Anyway, I said to him that he bought the truck pickup truck because of how it made him feel. He wasn't having any of it. He was he was I he was absolutely adamant this was a completely logical choice. I mean, it wasn't at all, but people people are in denial about it. I think. If you pick cars, electric cars are interesting. So there's Tesla, not the best build quality in the world. But man, the people who own them. I mean, you know a man owns a Tesla because he tells you, even if you haven't seen it, because he's so smug about owning his Tesla, right? And, you know, great. But it's that. It comes across all the time. And in fact, I was chuckling because when we do a, a customer core customer definition, actually the last thing on our list is, how will how do you want your customer to feel when they sign your contract? And I asked that question and people go, people just look at me and go, what do you mean? And I said, well, look, you're selling to a human being. You're not selling to a company, right? So, and so we've already worked through the, you know, what's in it for them, what's in it for the company, but like, how do you want to make it feel? The other thing which is interesting and cars are a good example. We'd had somebody recently, this lady bought a new car. She hadn't actually had her car delivered yet. And she told everyone she'd bought a new car, right? So there's the pre-purchase emotion is being shared. She can't even tell you how it drives because she's not even test-driven it. And so you want the same thing with your customers. The, the moment they're most likely to refer you is that emotional high when they've signed the contract and you haven't yet disappointed them with your delivery in any way, shape, or form. And there's this, you know, I often say, ask them at that point for a referral. And people find that counterintuitive because quite often they want to wait until they've delivered something. And it's like, no, because this isn't about widgets and, you know, did we tick the box and did you deliver it on time? It's actually, how do you make them feel? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And it, it's interesting. You know this. I know this. I think a lot of expert marketers know this, but it can be really hard to convince that software company that thinks they're changing the world with their whiz bang new tech that, you know what, the emotions behind what you're doing is, is really important. And I, I think that is one of the core pieces of the book that I really delve into it is that you've got to focus on that piece 
when you focus on, you know, the primal storytelling formula, it has three parts. So the first part is tribe. That's really defining the audience and what are their hopes and fears and dreams and the demographics, psychographics, all those things that we do with audiences. But the second part is really delving into what are their driving emotions and what are those primal urges that are keeping them from doing business with you or enticing them to do business with you. And, and one of the things that I actually taught, I give this example in the book is I, one time I was hired by this company and big, big, big company based in Manhattan, New York. And, you know, they had fortune 1000 clients and they decided they were going to go into kind of the middle market. You know, these companies that are you know, about a hundred to 500 employees and they were failing miserably. They were getting meeting after meeting after meeting and their sales team wasn't closing anything. They asked me to go there. And I've got a lot of sales experience and marketing experience. And so I went just as an observer and I realized that while we were there, like they didn't know how they were making their prospects feel. They came in and all of their examples were, we're working with this fortune 500 and this giant conglomerate and we're doing this and our call center in India is handling this and that. And like on the second call, they, they were meeting with IT people and the head of the IT team and the company they're meeting with, he asked them, he's like, have you guys ever worked with a small business before? And they didn't have an answer. And it was like this shock for them. And he walked out of them. I was like, you know, you're too big for your britches. Like, like, like they, you just, you're not connecting with these guys. They're worried. You do so much. The first question is not, can you do the job? Their first question is, if I hire you guys, am I getting fired? Are they taking my job? It's like, it's like this fear. And the psychographics, for those people who don't know what that term means, what are you pulling through? Yeah, so psychographics are the mental makeup of an audience. You know, what are their hopes? What are their dreams? What are their hobbies? Like, like what, what kinds of people are they, you know, internally? And trying to understand what is their motivation. Okay, that's the psychographic side of it. I, I really like to focus on hopes and dreams because and then relate that back to a brand. Because when you start to understand the motivations behind why someone might want your help or not, it can really help you like work through the fear side of it. You know, because here, here's the thing. There's, there's a reason back in the day, IBM had this thing. It's like, hey, no one ever got fired from hi hiring IBM. It's because they were working with big companies. And in a big company, one of the things that you know is, hey, if you don't make any mistakes, your, your job is safe. So by hiring someone new, someone untried, there's always this thing that this, this decision will reflect on me. Yes. I find that fascinating because sometimes, well, in a number of clients, we found when they look at their data, they can see that they win because often I'm working with smaller disruptive organizations. And in the data, they can see that the person who buys them has a higher risk tolerance. They've been in the job maybe less than 90 days. They've got to manifest some change quickly. So there's this opportunity this could make my career. Like it's not gonna, it could break my career as well, but it's like, there's no point in me buying IBM because if I buy IBM, like we've already got them, nothing changes. I'm here, I have this new opportunity. I'm prepared to look at new suppliers. I'm, if you can make me the hero, I'll buy you. And that is, you know, we've had people go, ah, that's really interesting because we can actually see when people in our tribe change jobs. We can follow one ex-client, we can follow a client from one company to another or, you know, we can spot people who are new in post and get through the door. Absolutely. And it's such a good example. And it, it's interesting is that when someone is going to take a risk, 
you know, there is a lot of emotional head trash that they have about the risk, you know, and I would say senior executive, especially in a larger company, you know, they're very rarely are the gamblers. You know, what they're doing is they're weighing the benefits, they're weighing, you know, what is the risk to themselves. And a lot of those are selfish emotions. They're not about the business deal itself. You know, and, and it's, if you, as a marketer, you as a business, if you can start to think through, like, not only how do I make them feel, but we ask the question, why might they be afraid to do business with us? Like, what are those fears? And if you can just start answering those questions and, you know, really, really helping them get over those fears early on in a sales process, in a marketing process, man, things go better. Things go really good. And so when you get into a, some of that, some more of that detail, have you got some more examples around overcoming some of those fears with some clients you've worked on? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I like to do is map your sales process to your marketing. So top of the funnel content, middle of the funnel content, bottom of the funnel content. And that top of the funnel content, what we're trying to do is, yeah, we're trying to get, we're trying to get eyeballs. We're trying to get people to find you and get some brand awareness out there. But what we're also starting to do is we're starting to overcome what are the obstacles to a business, you know, choosing you. And here's the thing is there's lots of choice out in the world. If you think if you're a company of one and you don't have competition, you're in a terrible business. You know, you need competition because that's where the business is. That's where high prices come from is from good competition. And when people are fearful of changing where they are, they're looking for something original. They're looking for something new. They're looking for something that is really going to move the needle from them. Okay. Then when you go down a little bit farther, you get to that middle of the funnel, you're starting to get into the decision-making cycle and they're starting to rethink themselves. And in the book, I, I talk about the four core stories. Okay. The, the middle of the funnel, that's those stories there. You're looking for transition stories. That's when you start throwing out case studies, testimonials, you know, the before, during, and after when someone worked for you before, what was it like before they found you? What was it like when they worked with you? And then what were those results? Okay. And at the bottom of the funnel content, and this is where a lot of companies really miss it, is that it's the final step that they need to take. And you, you hit on it. Donald Miller hits on it in story brand. It's you have to make them the hero. You're, the customer has to be the hero. They have, you have to show how that decision is a win for them personally and for their company. And if, if you're missing one and if it's a team sale and there's not a, you know, everyone on the team can say no, but there's only one big decision maker. That's a, it's a minefield. You have to have a win for everyone on that team. Okay. And in the marketing, what you do is you, you map those hopes and fears, the psychographics of each member on the team, each of the decision makers, bottom, middle, and top of the funnel. You know, so yeah, that's how I do it. And that's how I think a lot of companies should do it. And are there still using HubSpot to deliver these messages or are there different tools that you're now, account-based marketing tools or anything like that that you're using? I use a lot of tools. Uh, yes, I still use HubSpot myself. And, you know, Hub, but HubSpot is one tool among many in the market. You know, there's some competitors out there that are pretty good. And I, I know a lot of small businesses don't have a lot of tools. But it's not the tools that really make the process successful. Good content helps the tools, you know, the, the tools help the content and they help you measure. And, you know, think of HubSpot. It's a well-built tool shop where you have, think of like a wood shop. You got 
you got lots of tools for different purposes. HubSpot's all in one, you know, it does everything and it's, it's the 800 pound gorilla out there. But with just a few small tools, you can still be really successful. It's not the tools that make successful, it's the skill, it's the content you produce. That's what's going to make success. Could you do it without any tools? If you had a small enough target audience? Could you do it without any tools? You could, you absolutely could. You know, there, there's some really successful individual blogs out there that are really, really well, a really good blog. If you want to find an example of a standalone blog with millions and millions of followers, it's called wait, but why check out that blog. And this kid, he started writing this blog in college and it's a long form blog. Like some of the blog posts are 30,000 words, 40,000 words, 50,000 words. Check it out. It's insane. But when you get there and when you find, like you'll read a blog post and it has 10,000 comments. I actually found it from a, a post that the kid had written. I can't remember who, who wrote, writes that blog. I have to look it up real quick. Hold on one second. Tim Urban, that's his name. So I found Tim Urban. He had a, an article about how much time do you get to spend with your kids and your parents? And he was talking about like when your kids are at home and for those first 18 years, you spend more than 99% of the time that you're going to get with them. It's just during those 18 years that as soon as they graduate high school and they go out on their own, it's all downhill from there. You know, then he talks about like, Hey, when your parents, you know, when they hit 60, when they hit 70, you may only have 50 to hundred weekends left with them. You know, like the time gets really, 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 really small. And like, anyway, long story short. You know, my, my grandparents are very elderly. My mother is still alive. She's getting up there in her age. And it just made me think and get emotional about the time that I spent with them. And then focus on how much time do I get with my kids? And that single blog post that really touched me, pulled me into the blog. And he's got all these crazy articles in there about artificial intelligence and super intelligence, about Elon Musk, about just all these different subjects. And that's when I discovered, I was like, wow, this is, if anyone ever argues that short content rules, like this is an example where just the opposite. How do you navigate the cultural difference? So one of our clients, Time Etc., provides virtual assistance for entrepreneurs and they operate in the UK and the US as their primary markets. And a piece of emotional content that they run in the US works really well, which is if you're an entrepreneur, a VA will help you get more time to read bedtime stories to your children, right? That, so that works really well in the US, doesn't work for them in the UK. And so it's just some of these emotional things have some cultural differences as well. Yeah, sure. You know, I've done work in multiple different cultures and multiple languages. I'm, you know, my, I'm in a multilingual family, you know, so in my household, we speak both Russian and English. My wife was originally from Russia. Lots of cultural dishes, you know, cultural differences between Russians and Americans. My, I was a linguist in my early years and I've, you know, I've traveled to more than 25 countries and my, my oldest son has just moved. He's just in the process of moving to China. He's a, he's a class four Chinese speaker and, you know, he's doing some work over there. And what you're running to is as a marketer, you must understand your market and you have to have enough empathy. And you've got to learn what those cultural differences are. You know, like one of them between the UK and the US that is really stark is this underlying cultural theme of the side hustle and like everyone needs to be an entrepreneur and you should be starting your own business. And I, I think that kind of grind mentality in the US is a big thing right now. It's a cultural trend where I think the, the UK has been a little wiser and kind of 
push some of that off with, Hey, you know what? I do want to spend a lot more time. I do want to make my family first and a business second. You know, it's, it's a, it's something that you really have to think about. And, but that comes back to a core issue is you got to test. If you, if you have an idea, you need a way of testing that idea to a specific audience, you know? And so I have a whole testing process that I use and I know lots of companies that do, and it's, it's important that you do it. Yeah, it's interesting. There was an article I was reading at the weekend where a lady who's from Holland living in the US and she was just comparing and contrasting the, you know, she goes, she said, you know, goes into a store in America and people are like, Hey, how are you? She goes, do you know? Them? No, never met them before. And for her, that's like so over familiar and so fake. And then, and then one of, one of her friends said to her, but you're just so rude. And she's like, you know, just this whole, they're fake. I'm rude. You know, just, she said when she got to the U S she felt emotionally adrift because she just, you know, everything around her just seemed different and more amplified. And then she adjusted over time. And then when her friends come over from Holland, she can see them through, you know, cause they're matter of fact and perceived to be rude. Just fascinating. The differences. My, my wife had a very, very similar experience when she first moved to the U S you know, and I, I met her in Russia and she didn't speak English when she first moved here, you know, and I, I'm a fluent speaker. And so she moved here and, you know, she has a master's in electrical engineering. She's, she's super smart. So she picked up English like that. And like one of her things that she just thinks was hilarious here is that in, in the U S every single little detail is please and thank you. And, you know, followed by a smile and just over like, like you're kind of describing this overly familiar, overly polite to the point of being sickening. And with her, she, she said to me once, she's like, when I say no, and I don't say thank you, that doesn't mean that I'm ungrateful or, you know, think anything of it. It just means no, that's all. It's just, it's, it's just very simple. It's just like, doesn't it have to be complicated. It's just no. Uh, well, it's that sort of Dutch, you know, Poland, Bulgaria, out into Russia. I see that a lot with, with people I've had on my team who come from, from Eastern Europe. I, I really appreciate it, particularly if you're trying to do some work around being more straightforward in an organization. It's great to have some people like that who are just naturally straightforward and role model on them. Anthony, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I wish that I had really focused on my clients in a deeper way earlier on. You know, I, I think I think it would have helped me as a marketer earlier by focusing on them and not what we do. You know, and I think in my my first probably good three years in business, I was so focused on trying to tell people what I did and how good I was at it. And that I, you know, I'm like this super marketed genius. I can move the needle for you, right? If I had just focused on my clients more and focused on the audience more and what they needed and how I could help them, even if we weren't doing business, you know, and just being kind and, and, and having empathy, I think that would have helped me a lot more in the early days with a lot less frustration and, you know, and just really learning, you know, what entrepreneurs are going through and like, how big of a deal it is when they hire you and like, you know, making my onboarding process much better, much tighter. So that like you're saying, when they're excited to work with you right in the beginning, like you really capitalize on that excitement and you can help them get moving faster. And, you know, th those were kind of rookie mistakes that I made in the early years of my business. Now I'm training others to fix the problem, you know, and I'm moving much more toward, you know, I still do client work for sure. And I like doing it, but I've kind of moved up the scale, so I'm not nearly as accessible for everyone as I, I used to be. But now I'm training others so that 
they can go out and they can implement primal storytelling for businesses. And so primal storytelling available from all good bookstores. Are you doing an audible version at any point? I, you know, I just, it's, it's funny you say that. Yes, it's done. I'm about to, it'll be up by the end of this week. It'll be on audible. That's magic because that's always my preferred way to consume stuff as I'm driving around or running. What else should people pick up and read on this topic or others? You know, my, my, the, the one book that I recommend to anyone in any creative endeavor, definitely for marketers, even though it wasn't written for marketers, was The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. You know, it's a book for creatives. And, you know, Pre Pressfield's a genius. And the guy, he's written a lot of really successful books and, you know, he's had a long career. But I think that book was written to help creatives deeply understand, like, how can you do your best work and what's holding you back from it? And I think with a lot of creatives and I'm going through this, with my oldest son, he's 18 and he's created his first course and, you know, he's got, he's a really smart kid. He's doing all this stuff and getting stuff out the door. He's tied up with, well, this is not good enough. It's never good enough. You know, and a month goes by and it's still not good enough. Two months go by. It's still not good enough. I'm like, listen, you see the green button? You got to press ship it. You just got to get it out the door and like, let your audience decide and they'll tell you, and then you can make it better and you can create, you know, and. It, it with the war of art, I think it's also a war against procrastination because sitting down is the hardest thing that you do, right? You're going to create something new. Like writing this book, writing books is hard. <laughs> As you know, you've written a bunch of books, I guess. It is and hard for different people in different ways. You know, I think it's people get stuck at different points. What else do you think people should pick up? Just straight marketing book. I think Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson. That is a book I think it should be required reading in every marketing school around America. He lays out some frameworks for lots of very core marketing skills that if you're just getting started out, that's a good place to start. Particularly, I mean, it's that's about, he's famous for his funnel marketing and demand generation. Yep. Yep. He is famous for click funnels and that's where he got started. He's the first self-made billionaire from Idaho, you know, completely self-funded, no outside money. You know, and he has three books, you know, dot-com secrets, traffic secrets, and expert secrets. But of the three, the most useful to, especially young marketers, is expert secrets. Like, that's the book I have. Every single, every new person who comes in my company reads that book because it has a core set of skills that as a marketer, you just must have. So could you use whether people have read it as an interview question? So I tell them ahead of time, if you want to work here, you should read this book before we interview. Uh, and do, do some people not read it? Oh yeah, of course. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> Change is so hard. I was listening to a podcast the other week and this guy said, look, I think it's in the United States, 54% of people, the first presentation of a heart attack is that they turn up dead. 54% of people don't survive the first one. And of those that survive the first one, 85% of them don't make any changes to their lifestyle. And the second or the third one takes them out. And it's just... And then a shock. It's hard to get people to change. It is hard. I wasn't actually thinking about you, whether you used it for recruitment. I was just thinking about the CEOs. Quite often, CEOs I work with or speak to are in the process of looking for or changing their marketing team or their marketing agency. And if they, they might not read the book, but if they know there's a book that should be read, question about what people think are the core texts often give you a sense of how up to speed they are or whether you might want to hire them. Yeah, it's, it's one of those where, you know, in the marketing world, we're focused on skill and we're focused on, hey, have you done this kind of work before? Have you been successful in this endeavor before? And often what we're looking, if, if they don't and they're young and they're just started out in their career, 
then what we're trying to do is we're trying to gauge what kind of person are they and can I train them over time to be productive and help move the needle in my business? You know, because I can't train character, but I can train skill. Yeah, totally. High for attitude. Where can people find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I the most on social media. I use Instagram a little bit. I don't use Twitter. And then obviously primalstorytelling.com. Fantastic. Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, picking your brains today. Hey, thank you, Dom. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.